Welcome, Take This listeners, to a special, one-of-a-kind archival episode entitled One Album Wonders. So what we're doing today, kids, is, uh, is, is a Mez idea. And the Mighty Mez, my name is Rich Buckland, by the way, and as you know, my partner, the Mighty Mez, Bill Mesnick, we are the Splendid Bohemians, and we are pleased to be with you once again for another episode of Dig This. And uh, this particular episode is Bill's uh, brainchild. Oh, and thank you. I think it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a beaut, and we are going to be talking about one hit albums, one album wonders. One album wonders. And we went through a variety of artists we thought would fill the criteria for this topic um, and settled upon four that Mm -hmm. we believe you will find immensely interesting. And uh, why don't you you lead off in the lineup and pick pick up your bat and tell us who, (laughs) who you'd like to take a swing at first. I mean that in the nicest way possible. So you don't want to give the whole list at the top. You want to just just uh, kind of surprise people. Interesting. Do we use the hang in there motif? Uh, yeah, let's do that. Let's do it one at a time. And uh, okay, all right. You know, let's 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 test the loyalty of these listeners. Uh-huh. Okay. Let's see. Well, uh, that, let's start off with um, David Foreman. F O R M A N. Who released an album in 1976, uh, the bicentennial year, uh, called David Foreman. And uh, this is an interesting guy. I, I thought, I guess the whole genesis of the idea came when I was, you know, doing my usual um, foraging in Amoeba. And in the 99 cent album rack, they were displaying this David Foreman record. And I, I thought, David Foreman, David Foreman, I've heard this name before. Where did I hear this name? And it just sort of uh, popped into my brain that I remembered hearing, uh, maybe it was in Mojo magazine or somewhere, where they were talking about Buried Treasures albums that were long forgotten that people loved and uh, so I took it home I listened to it then I started kind of poking around the internet and and indeed David Foreman uh, when this album came out Dave Marsh in Rolling Stone October 7th 1976 um, said um, Foreman's style is rooted in soul singers like Barbara Lewis Curtis Mayfield and Smokey Robinson Adult pop singers and writers form is not just a brilliant lyricist. His melodies are fine, and he's an arresting, if derivative and occasionally uncertain vocalist. No matter what the verdict of the charts may be, David Foreman is an artistic success. And um, I thought, oh, yes, that's right. They they were raving about him. And then he disappeared like a stone uh, in the water. The record flopped. Um so he had been he had been originally discovered by Paul Nelson, the critic and A&R man at Mercury Records, but they didn't want to produce him. 
So Clive Davis and Arista scooped him up. And uh, the album tanked, and uh, Clive didn't release a second. And uh, I think then, of course, I, he went away and wrote jingles. And then he's still working today in Jersey and the environments around there in a doo-wop group called Little Isidore and the Inquisitors. Right, right. So that's a, that's a capsule of what I know. Um, but there's more. But you, let, let me hear your take on this. Well, my recollection is picking it up um, as a result of the Rolling Stone review, which in retrospect, uh, I think was, I think was overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly praised David Foreman for, while admitting the derivative nature. And it was the derivative nature that I heard first and not the original content. To me, whatever Springstonian, whatever Elton Johnish, whatever Billy Joelish influences were were circulating uh, around his uh, hypothalamus, that's what I heard first. I did not, the lyrics sounded stilted, they sounded uneven, and he sounded unsure in the vocals. I picked the album up at Sam Goody's, and I bring it home, I put it on the turntable one time, and it stayed there until you reminded me of it uh, a few weeks ago. Interesting. Now, you've re-listened. Yes. And uh, what is, uh, you still hold the same opinion? It's, it's even more, uh, I think it's, it's even, I think it's as uneven as I remember it initially as a 22, 23 year old. And I don't, and I understand fully why we did not hear from David Foreman again. Not because he lacked the talent but because in these situations where you get these kind of reviews and you have this kind of production, I don't think they knew where to go next. I don't mm. think he knew where to go next. I think there was a wall that was hit and it was kind of understood that, that Arista was not going to uh, be participating any longer. That means you've got to go out, you've got to get another major deal because you've gotten these rave reviews. That evidently did not happen. And Mr. Foreman had admitted in interviews that his real desire was, well, look, I'm, you know, it doesn't make much of a difference to me. I got kids, I got a wife, I'd rather stay home. And right, that, and I think, I think that is key. I think he did not necessarily have the required ambition. And why go through all of the difficulties of this, of this maze of show business, record production, uh, and, and, and business that, that, that you have to keep in touch with constantly if all you really want to do is keep in touch with your family? So mm -hmm. you're probably absolutely correct. I mean, he made, I think, at the end of, of his episode of fame uh, where these rave reviews were coming in, I think he made a conscious decision to not participate as he had participated and put together this 
oldies group. And uh, yeah. I had the opportunity to perform with them many, many years ago. And a mm. solid cover band. But once again, why he made that decision was kind of obvious, keeps him close to home, whatever traveling he wants to do. Uh, it's on his own accord. He doesn't have to really want, he didn't have to wander too far from home. And uh, well, he obviously has a um, theatrical bent. Yeah. Uh, this little Isidore is is an alter ego that looks like, um, you know, Fu Manchu and um, sings this very particular brand of, of doo-wop, 1950s and early 1960s doo-wop. Um, and uh, he's been doing it now for several decades. And yeah. he still work. They're still working. Yeah, they still work. And um, for that, you know, they have to be applauded. But the, you know, you're, for those who are curious, you can check out their videos on YouTube and uh, see David in his, uh, in his Isidore incarnation. And you can make a judgment for yourself. I mean, there's lots of rock and rockabilly bands, tribute bands, country tribute bands. Um, some of them are better than others. And I leave that reservation as to how little Isidore succeeds up to... Well, you know, he, he says that Garth Hudson uh, came up to him one time after he was on The Letterman Show. And uh, he said, I, I think your rock and roll records are incredible. And uh, so Garth Hudson has a pedigree. Uh, I, th I thought um, also this is an interesting... Uh, tidbit of information so he assisted philip petit in his legendary walk across the twin towers in 74 and he's featured in the documentary man on wire and that was a an accidental uh you know encounter which led to uh, a historic event and to me that's possibly one of that's possibly one of the most interesting things I've ever heard a musician engaging in because um, that was a one-of-a-kind event. And yeah. uh, however, he, however he got hooked up with that, um, it seems as it doesn't seem the stuff of rock musicianship. Well, I have to, I have to disagree with you um, about the musicianship uh, in, in the, uh, eponymous David Foreman album. Some sailor home from sea, drinking. 
smoky China tea. It, I, I've been listening to it, and um, there are a couple of cuts that I find very moving. It's very romantic. It's lush. Uh, it was um, produced by Joel Dorn uh, with with a you know a small but um, really tasteful uh, uh, ensemble. So some strings. It's mostly piano based. Uh, it's interesting that he covers one fine day, um, and that's sweet. But I really like, I like, I like his voice. I love the, um, you know, it's interesting. The lyrics can be interpreted as stilted, or I think he was trying for something uh, original, and um, he had a way of juxtaposing. These sort of epic themes with simple uh, early style uh, rock and roll, and uh, mostly on the uh, ballad side. But cuts like Rosalie, uh, where the Vietnam vet comes back and he's looking for a place to land, um, I found that moving.、Um, So、the song "Smoky China Tea."、Um, it it wasn't、um, stupid, you know. You you might call it stilted, but it was、um, it exuded、uh, intelligence and and and、uh, yearning. So I think it's worth listening to. And I I agree. My perception is 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 quite possibly.、Uh, Distorted in some fashion from the early comparisons and then the length of time between listens, and it, it's not as simple. I, I might listen to it a third time and discover something in there that I'm that that I'm overlooking. See, I think you got to take it on its own terms. You know, you can't compare it to Springsteen, although it was compared to Springsteen.、Um, Springsteen style romanticism. And of course, Springsteen also、uh, firmly rooted in the, those early rock and roll records. So they did have some confluence there. But、um, he was trying for some. You know, it's um, it's more. I don't know. It's not Elton John. It's not. Although it's piano based, it's、um, it may be more Jim Steinman. Um, It's funny that you mentioned Steinman,、else. and and Steinman comes from a tradition of the big rock Broadway show. Yes, and I think that David Foreman has this theatricality as well. Yes, and there's something Broadway about it to me. There's something about the performances that I can imagine myself sitting. Not in a rock, not in 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 an auditorium, a Fillmore,、uh, or the Bottom Line, where 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 David Foreman did did appear, but I imagine it more in a Broadway theater, surrounded by some storylines. Yes, exactly. And what Meatloaf was able to do. Now, Meatloaf was a huge success uh, uh, on Bad Out of Hell, and those also those operatic. Um, you know,、uh, st- 
string supported um, mini operas. Um, and Springsteen, you know, he did the same thing with Jungle Land and, and some other uh, opuses like that. So, yes, they come out of similar traditions. And David Foreman, for whatever reason, didn't have the desire to suffer for his art. When the thing tanked, he was like, okay, uh, I'm not going to, uh, to you know, beat my head against the wall. And I'm going to stay with my family and, you know, stick close to home and so the ambitions got uh, a lot smaller. Yeah, and I think you have to truly be quite dedicated to the prospect of success. I mean, it goes for anything. But in this particular instance, I think there were pressures that he didn't want to. He didn't want to have to live up to certain expectations. Everything that you are stating is absolutely true. And my discomfort with the recording does not does not lessen its merit. I mean, I'm just stating from from my experience with it, something was eclipsing Foreman himself, wherein with the Steinman and Meatloaf performances of two years later, but they were doing these Broadway shows, yeah. uh, Meatloaf and Steinman, two, three years earlier. So they were working this all out. I don't know what Foreman was doing prior to this. Yeah, Meatloaf was in um, Rocky Horror Show was in Rocky, and exactly. some other things. So he uh, was in preparation for this bad out of hell uh, success and the songs. No, no one expected Steinman to be coming up with these with these compositions. But uh, because that, that's well, really where the whole thing lies. You know, it says here that, um, I guess, along with his jingle writing, He's done soundtracks for the How the Grinch Stole Christmas and Revolutionary Road. So he's doing okay. He's in the, you know, he's definitely making a good living. Um, but I'd be curious to know, because the second album uh, featured the, the lineup of Ry Cooter, Tim Drummond, and Jim Keltner. And um, it never saw the light of day. I want, it's, it might, I'd be curious to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess also I'm thinking in terms of, I also think in terms of other recordings of the time that I'd listened to that did not get any credit, and I'm wondering why, and one that stands out is Tim Moore's uh, Second Avenue on Asylum. Uh, and then he later went to Electra. He, he worked with Frank Zappa. Uh, you know, I, th I thought that was a recording from 75 that got lost in the, uh, got lost in the shuffle. But well, well, let's let you let's you, you um, pick one of your um, one album wonders. Well, I have to go with with a, rec a record that captured me from the very first time that I heard it, uh, and I still listen to on a very regular basis. Uh, it's a Electra recording during that same period of uh, Love's Forever Changes and The Doors and um, that remarkable Electra Records period right after mm -hmm. their folk boom. And the name of the band is Clear Light. I seem to have some wishes I would say For wars to win Remain a friend, please don't move away. 
Clear Light. Clear. Originally the Brain Train. The Brain Train. Uh, a, a, a fascinating record because it's a, it's efforts to combine the psychedelic with folk, with country, with what seemingly are stirrings of, of heavy metal beginnings. Um, some thought the record was all over the place, but I thought it was uh, I thought it was very well defined. Hmm. Produced by Paul Rothschild, who also produced The Doors in Love. Right, right, and you can hear those influences in there. You can hear those. Oh, influences. totally, yes. And uh, it's the group is helmed by uh, Cliff DeYoung, who went on to a successful acting career. Who was actually a replacement. Right, he was a replacement. But he is featured on the cover. He is featured on the cover of uh, originally. The first the first um, recordings that they made, I guess, were for the soundtrack of The President's Analyst. Yes. And Barry Maguire. <laughs> yeah. Barry Maguire was cast as their vocalist. Yes. Yes. So in a sense, there's almost a, a monkey's like uh, <laughs> uh, manufactured quality to the uh, lineup here there was a there was a definitive effort to create something that was going to meet the expectations and standards of some of the uh, popular music of the day you hear the country rock influence you hear the psychedelic influence you hear almost uh, an iron butterfly influence. You hear Rothschild utilizing bass and acoustic guitar as he had used it so successfully with Arthur Lee and Forever Changes. Yes, I happen, I have to agree with you. Um, and in agreeing with you, I also, I also state that what became the monkeys and those voice and heart songs and those recordings uh, are are still treasures in my estimation so some absolutely the monkeys yeah. uh, the monkeys have gained in stature over the decades yeah and Dolans and Nesmith are going out together on tour this year uh, Mike Nesmith had suffered some some health problems but now Mickey and uh, Mike are going back out on tour Peter I understand is is quite ill and uh, yeah. Mickey, of course, and uh, uh, Davey passed away. But yeah, sometimes the manufacturing of this stuff succeeds. Now, in Jan and Dean's case, it did not. They were the original idea for that half hour. And uh, the pilot called On the Run is available on YouTube. You can take a look at this mess. Uh, and it was from that that the monkeys were spawned. Uh -huh. uh, but clear light had all of these influences and the intent was certainly to create something that would touch every single bass. So you had Bob Seal, the lead guitar player, Robbie mm -hmm. Werewolf Robeson on rhythm guitar. He, he did vocals as well. There was Doug Luban on bass and Dallas Taylor played percussion. Yeah. And Dallas Taylor had a storied career as a, as a percussionist. What I found interesting also about them is that Electra promoted them as having double drumming, meaning that there were two percussionists in the band. And when I indeed saw them live 
at the gaslight. They were, they opened for uh, the electric flag and James Cotton. Just, yeah. just think to yourself, the electric flag, <laughs> James Cotton, clear light with two drummers, with two drummers on that stage. And they sounded remarkable in that little room. And I, I will, well, I, you know, the dead also had two drummers. Yes. But this was this was promoted as being a uh, an inventive event that mm -hmm. one has not actually seen before. I don't know how early on were the dead playing with two percussionists. Do you know? Uh, not sure, yeah. but uh, probably around the same time. Around the same time, because it makes sense that they'd borrow from here and they would borrow from there. And uh, and I believe the Allman Brothers had uh, two percussionists. I mean, there was one guy on on uh, on congas and one guy on the drums. So uh, the it wasn't other, unheard of. No, it wasn't unheard of. The second percussionist in Clearlight was named Michael Nye. Um, NEY and uh, uh, I believe on the album cover it's it states double drumming and you have to play it loud and it's, it's stereo and it, it happens to be great stereo it's just just beautiful beautiful stereo they also did something that I found fascinating they took the Tom Paxton folk song Mr. Blue and turned it into a heavy metal psychedelic uh uh, message of the times of how we have to be fearful of authority. Good morning, Mr. Blue. We've got our eyes on you. The evidence is clear that you've been scheming yeah, that was fascinating when I heard that because it it really sounded like The Doors. And and Cliff D. Young, who was an actor who had done hair and some other things, was cast or put into the lead vocalist position. And he's doing this incredible uh, monologue, uh, and it's very um, disturbing. And uh, it, Paul Rothschild creating his, uh, you know, uh, Jim Morrison-like environment it was uh, you could really hear the influence oh yeah good morning mr blue we've got <laughs> eye on you step softly mr blue we know what's best for you step softly Mr. Blue, we know what's best for you. We know where your precious dreams will take you. It fit that FM psychedelic criteria. Uh, that whole moody blues kind of thing that was that that was going on as well. Um, it just fit into that playlist. Uh, it's hard to imagine Tom Paxton, the avuncular, uh, soft-spoken folk singer, 
being reinterpreted in in this uh, <laughs> scary way. Well, that, it's 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 brilliant because mm-hmm. when you when you take what the song is referencing, what it is about, and it's just as important today as it was then. Um, about how we have to be so careful of, 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 of the authority that attempts to impose itself upon us. Um, it, it was made into this schizophrenic sound with this alarm going off, this warning. And that's what those guitars sound like in the track. They sound like these sirens, these warnings of an apocalyptic event to come. Uh, and little did we know that you know the worst was still yet to happen with Vietnam at that particular time, and then we take a look, you know, almost half a century later, and you know where 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 are we in that concept of somebody's watching and somebody wants yeah. his, his foot on your neck. So uh, and it's interesting that um, you know in terms of our theme, the one album wonder, that the same uh, instinct that Paul Rothschild had for uh, putting Cliff Young in there and kind of re-jiggering, taking out the the lead guitar player and putting in the, the keyboard player. Um, the, he just kept going. So after the first album didn't do that well, it only made uh, to 126 on the Billboard chart and got a D-minus rating for the Village Voice, uh, Rothschild started pressuring other members of the group to fire the founder Bob Seal and replaced him with ex fug Danny Cooch Kuchmar, who we all know from working with James Taylor. Right, we know how and that Cl- worked out. Yeah, yeah. Then Cliff DeYoung left, and so uh, they on- they had to abandon their second album uh, in the middle. Yeah, there's a few tracks on the extended CD that that give you some insight as to what they were preparing, but. None of it is as as well crafted as those initial tracks. Uh, Street Singer, Child Smile, uh, of course, Black Roses, which was the attempted single, and that also got that also got airplay. That also got some pretty decent rotation on FM radio. But um, in my estimation, one of those recordings that I just never forgot. And I, it doesn't get old to me. It just it doesn't get old. Well, it's de- very very much a flagship of its time. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And however it was conceived, however it was uh, um, constructed, makes no difference to me in how I reflect upon uh, the result. The result I think was successful, and. Would have liked to have heard more, but evidently yeah. these were business decisions more than they were creative decisions. And when those things occur, you can kiss any real uh, c- creative content goodbye uh, because <laughs> it's been overwhelmed by the consumer, the consumerism of it all, and not the craft and the art. So, uh, by clear light. But thank you for uh, thank you for existing. Yes. And thank you for showing me the light. Hail to thee, clear light, the LSD named uh, uh, title. Um, moving on, let's talk about 
the elusive and mysterious Vashti Bunyan. familiar with Vashti Banya. Um, so how, how are you enjoying your discovery? I, I, in retrospect, I was remembering a couple of recordings that I had that were produced by Andrew Oldham. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I found, I found one of them. Um, she was going to be the next Marianne Faith. She, that was pretty much the idea. And yes. Jagger and Richards and Brian Jones and Andrew Oldham, they all collaborated on the potential that she had. Um, but why don't you take the story from from that particular uh, point in time? Because yeah. Her, well, the, yeah, go ahead. Her evasion on the popular music scene is very interesting how this flight never really occurred. It's an amazing story. The real story begins after all of that, when, you know, she, she, they put out this single on immediate called some things just stick in your mind. It was written, written by Jagger and Richards. Mm -hmm. It, it didn't do well. Um, eventually she just gave up and decided to <laughs> make a trip to the outer islands of Scotland, the Hebrides, and on a horse and cart. Now, this is very hippie stuff. And um, because Donovan had created a commune way up there, and um, she, she was attracted to the idea of living on a commune and getting away from the city and all of this. And while they were making this trip by horse and cart, she was writing songs, not for, you know, recording, but just for herself. And it was sort of a diary of this trip up to the country. And um, you cut to 1968, where she met Joe Boyd. Now, that's a name we've talked about possibly doing a his own uh, show because he's the one who oversaw and produced Fairport Convention and uh, Nick Drake and uh, Fairport Convention and Nick Drake and the Incredible String Band and you know all those great um, freaky folk people in Britain during that time when he was uh, decamped to London as the Electra Records uh, producer in in the UK, and anyway, so he recorded this album with her, and uh, it featured musicians from those groups: the Fairport Convention, Incredible String Band, and it was called "Just Another Diamond Day." Nineteen seventy. Nineteen seventy. It also did not do well. 
And so she she just gave up the business and moved up to Ireland and raised her three children. And we cut to 30 years later, she's been discovered. Her album is selling online for $4,000. Um, the album gets reissued on CD in 2000 and becomes a holy grail for a new generation of freak folk artists, Devandra Barhart and Joanna Newsom. And here she is now in her 70s and finally successful after 30 years of, you know, just hiding away. But I guess it deter I guess it, it really depends upon one's interpretation of the word successful. Of course, of course. Because I, I'm, I'm still willing to bet that the majority of, of, uh, of music frequenters are not familiar with Vashti Bunyan, even who are of our age and our experience with the music. Of course, and this goes for practically anybody you want to name, um, because the, the thoughts that inhabit our brain I don't think are shared by the majority of people, but uh, right. they they have been. Her songs have been used for commercials recently as well. T-Mobile, Reebok. Um, she's done the soundtrack for True Detective. Um, so, yes, she's she successful in terms of recognition from a particular section of musical aficionados and and people who could actually put some money in her bank account so and she's out there performing and uh, I think she's very happy that you know at this late age she's become appreciated which season of true detective was her music contained in uh, I'm not sure. It says in 2014 as part of the soundtrack for the TV series True Detective. Then so. it was on the uh, it was on the first season. So Probably, yeah. That means T T Bone Burnett, who was in charge of of the music for that program, um, and includes some wonderful music. He made a conscious decision to use her, and uh, yes, yeah, that certainly meant some exposure and some money. Uh, because and that he, makes sense because he knows what he's doing. Yeah, that's. I was just going to say he's 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 genius in so many in so many ways, and for him to place these songs in your consciousness while you're watching a program, so many times you're you, you're you're googling to find out uh, what these what these songs are. But I just love this record. I've listened to it a lot. Um, it just is so soothing and uh, so evocative of the mystery of the environment in which she was writing and uh, it's timeless I think. And I think that this is your I have to agree with you 100% this is we're getting like Siskel and Ebert on this episode <laughs> you know uh, I have to agree with you 100% uh, <laughs> let me tell you in this production the scenery was delicious and uh, <laughs> these actors were on fire she I got a sense that everything all the equipment was functioning properly 
all the spiritual, the spiritual nature was in bloom and all of the sensations that I hoped to have received from the David Foreman album, I receive with the, with the Vashti Bunyan album. Oh, good. I'm glad. And maybe that's, for me, the difference, a, a key of actual emotion and originality, where that's the derivative part of the David Foreman concept that threw me, and I guess still throws me. But with this particular recording, yes, uh, qu quite a gift. Quite a gift. Yeah, hard to call this derivative in the sense that she was uh, totally cut off from all civilization and just writing these lovely kind of lilting, uh, almost prayers. It's just so in touch with her spiritual nature and her environment. It's, um, it, it makes me very happy. Okay, take us home. Take us home. Number four. Number four is not going to be too tough to uh, or, or or too long a story because there's not much that is really known. And you found out more about this cat than I had been able to discover previously because he had disappeared seemingly from any music scene. But uh, I worked my ass off, man. I googled for hours, following every rabbit hole. This guy is—you talk about obscure. This guy is obscure. This is this is this is a this is a gentleman named Bruce McKay. Who, 
only album for ESP Disc, uh, and you and I have done an episode on the on, on the uh, ESP Disc label and the variety of recordings that they released from from uh, avant-garde jazz to to folk to the Fugs to Pearls Before Swine, uh, just to Patty Waters. I mean this immaculate label, this this sanctuary for artists that nobody, the gods of course, for other artists that nobody else really would, would deal with. And Bruce McCabe made this record and I remember having picked it up strictly due to the cover at so many of those ESP discs, disc covers. Uh, the cover captured me. And it's, it's an interesting cover. What is that uh, thing that's on the, that roundish thing that's on the side of, it's like a sand dune, it's a, and then there's, is it a rock? What is it's, it? It's a rock. It's, it's, it appears to be the ocean coming in, It can, mm. or it could be interpreted as a sand dune, and it is a rock and a line leading from where the rock has evidently been moved. Yeah. Do you have you have you thought about the symbolism of that? Well, it's the simplicity, and because there is a uh, there is an ancient prayer on the cover of the album. Uh, Old Shing has nothing in this world. He sits in emptiness, and his emptiness reverberates in emptiness. I'm paraphrasing, but basically that is. The, the idea, it's breaking everything down to its most simplistic component. Mm. Um, so I got that immediately. And from the moment I placed it on the turntable, there was something about it that, that just took me away. And once again, this is another recording that I'll listen to uh, every year without fail. Uh, and there are tunes on there that have inescapably stayed with me like Feet of Clay, uh, Half-Masted Schooner, and the very last track, which for some reason is not included on the CD version, but is only on the album version called So Simple It Seems. Uh, I just found Bruce McKay and also, the picture on the back of the album, he and his girlfriend, Tanya, mm -hmm. looking like East Village waits. Yes. It's just, a, it's a, he looks, he looks like he hasn't eaten in, <laughs> in, two, <laughs> in two months. She looks like she's not eating with him for reasons that probably have nothing to do with fasting. Uh, and uh, it turns out Bruce McKay is from Canada. Right. He was part of, uh, he's from Quebec, and uh, he's part of that McGill uh, scene that Leonard Cohn came out of. And he, I found, like I said, I found very little online. Most of the information is the fact that he and Tanya became filmmakers. Her in particular became an award-winning filmmaker after they split up. Um, she, um, but, but there's a thing here. He played in Winnipeg, uh, featured on the same show called Through the Eyes of Tomorrow, uh, that also featured Joni Mitchell. 
And so it's a Johnny Mitchell's featured with singer composer Bruce McKay and Mark Stone uh, and the Edmonton group, The Loving Sound. But like I said, most of what you find is his IMDb page where he was a director and composer of documentary films mostly. And um, that's it. And, you know, there are so many... Bruce McKay is a common name. So there was there are a lot of Bruce McKay's. There was a guy who was a singer, actor, uh, who appeared regularly on Broadway named Bruce McKay. And I sort of followed that rabbit hole for a while and found out that wasn't him. Um, but yeah, he is a Canadian filmmaker. I think he's still alive. Tanya has passed on, unfortunately. And um, this was one album released in 1967 and reissued in CD as Midnight Minstrel. Yes, Midnight Minstrel. Um, and that's only seven um, seven songs on the CD. And, uh, no, actually, well, this is interesting because I'm looking at a copy here that is different from the original copy. So it's not the ESP disc copy, but they did they did delete So Simple It Seems. Mm-hmm. So the tunes are misty-eyed shores of morning. Uh, once again, the spiritual feel, and like Leonard Cohen, he likes to tell stories. Uh, he likes to tell stories about women, and he sings about Geneva Brown, and he sings about the girl of stone, um, and feet of clay. Um, and yeah, that- and I think he actually, when he was doing his films. He made a film of one of his songs called Half Mapped Schooner. Mm-hmm. And so he actually did the film and used the song as the soundtrack. And the recording features all of these ESP disc musicians that you've heard on the Fugs recordings and that were used as sidemen on, on other recordings. So it has that familiar ESP disc almost improvised at times sloppy at times feel and I always appreciated that about the ESP disc <laughs> well have you read the uh, the commentary by Richie Richie Unterberger <laughs> no I have not uh, he did not like it so you know I, most people that I've spoken to don't like it at all yeah, shall I read you some of that? Oh, yeah, please, please. <laughs> He's a pretty interesting cat. Okay, he said, um, uh, Bruce McKay's self-titled LP combined elements of Bob Dylan in the free associative rambling wordplay, Tim Buckley in the reverberated reverberated guitar lines, Donovan and the aforementioned Pearls were Fort Swine, without adding up to anything substantial. The long-winded songs tend to drift along interminably without enough melodic interest and lyrical insight to spark, let alone maintain interest. So, yeah, that's pretty pretty rude. Oh, he was vicious. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> see, that's just vicious. That's just downright vicious. I don't think he was I don't think he was willing to pay any attention. How dare he denigrate your inspiration? Well, no, you know, I mean, I can understand hearing all of the influences that he's citing in there. They're, they they are in there, but they're not in there as the dictating factor. They are in there as everyone has some influence. They're in there, and I'm not meaning to compare, but 
it's, but you could make that same argument for David Foreman. You, uh, yeah, yeah, but that still <laughs> wouldn't explain my discomfort with David Foreman, would it? Right. But my discomfort may very well be, uh, I wasn't a great fan of Bad Out of Hell. No, my, me neither. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I was never a fan of that type of, of theatered, uh, popular music. But like I said, the emotion, the yearning, uh, when I was listening to it recently, that's what connected me. I thought it, it's, it, there's a lot of emotion there. But anyway, let's finish, uh, finish up Bruce McKay, and then we'll sign off. We're, we're, we've, we've spoken uh, a, a bit. Well, ultimately, Bruce McKay, there, there's not more to be said. I mean, if one wants to uh, look up these tracks on YouTube, purchase the CD, uh, I would suggest that it's a worthy listen for reasons that uh, uh, someone interested in a combination of folk and rock and jazz could particularly appreciate with these ESP disc yearnings. And it's the ESP disc yearnings, their, their attempts to create something that always captured me. And the Bruce McKay as the Fugs, as Randy Burns, as Patty Waters, did not fail to do that. So it's another ESP disc recording of great consequence to me. And if you're a fan of ESP disc, if you're a fan of that label, you'll appreciate Mr. McKay. But as you said, Bill, trying to find any information on the man, you can pretty well forget about it. I've been trying for years and you just gave it the best effort that you could and you came up with more than I did. Thank you so much for presenting this opportunity to, uh, to talk about these four artists. This was fun and fascinating too. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun, and uh, we and I and I encourage everyone listening, please check out these artists because you'll find it, if not to your liking, just an interesting chapter in uh, musical history. No doubt about it. We'll give you the lineup one more time: Vashti Bunyan, Clear Light, Bruce McKay, and. David, David Foreman, Foreman, and I'm going to listen to David Foreman again today, and then I'm going to come back <laughs> with another critique, which will probably be somewhat different from my uh, from from all the the lapses. Well, stay true to yourself, man. No, stay no, true. no. I, I, I'm always willing to give when when you and I discuss something, and we have some deviation in in appreciation. I always go back and I try to give it a, another, as I did with the Dion record that you were so crazy about, and then I played it like 28 times. <laughs> after, after not being able to listen to it once, so uh, yeah, you have a you have an influence on me as well, Miss. All right, all right, my friend. I thank you so much. And uh, this is Rich Buckland, Bill Mesnick, and we are going to say goodbye to you and thank you until next time. The splendid Bohemians bid you farewell. And uh, bye, everybody. Bye, everybody.